0: Lots of people don't have a great life. It's a very troubling and difficult world for a lot of people. And that Friday night out or Saturday night is so important for their sense of morale and mm. bringing some joy into their lives. And I really feel that, and people put their trust in you.
1: Meet Dave Haslam, one of the incredible people that has put the heart and soul into modern Manchester. Dave's a DJ, writer, curator and activist. He's DJed all over the world, including very famously at the Hacienda and the Boardwalk. He writes books about music, culture, politics, art and ideas and has promoted new bands, creating stages at the Manchester International Festival. Dave's incredibly curious and as you'll hear, the hunger he has to find out about new books and music and share them with people is as strong as ever. I wanted to know what it's been like to be a key part of Manchester's cultural revolution and why it's always so important to keep on looking forward. I'm Lisa Morton and this is We Built This City. Dave, welcome to We Built This City.
0: Nice to be here.
1: We've had you on the list for a long time now, so I'm glad that we're doing this today, finally. You're an adopted monk, I think it's fair to say, born in Moseley, Birmingham, and came to Manchester University, and lived here ever since, other than a stint in Paris, and obviously you've, you've travelled widely, but I just thought it was interesting, because I went to university in Birmingham, and a lot of our friends lived in Moseley.
0: Yeah, Moseley was a, you know, it was quite kind of bohemian studenty place. There was a pub called The Fighting Cox where a lot of local bands and other bands played, so it was pretty good and, and Mosley was a good a good place to grow up for sure. And I now live in West Didsbury. I think it's pretty similar to Mosley and it's got that kind of mix of big old Victorian houses and students and I think uh when it came to the Brexit vote, Mosley and West Didsbury were both in the ten highest places to vote against Brexit in the whole of the country so it's got a very similar demographic so I feel like my my life has come a weird full circle.
1: (laughs) You're absolutely right it does feel like Didsbury I was thinking that as we were talking so you said that one of the best things about DJing is that you get to travel the world and wherever you go you meet your tribe and your books have also led you to travel so what is it about the tribe in Manchester that's kept you here for all these years?
0: I mean, I've enjoyed the travel a lot, and as you say, what's great about, especially with the DJing, is that you arrive somewhere and you're instantly surrounded by like-minded people. Obviously, they're into the music, and there might be somebody organising the gig, and they're normally very keen to take you to their favourite bar or restaurant, and and you make a lot of friends at the club, and it's almost like they kind of wave you goodbye the next day. And I, I usually kind of think, I could live here, you know, I have friends already. And so i'm kind of torn in a way because i think what that has taught me is that i can connect with people who are on the face of it very different you know they don't live in manchester or m20 or even you know england so when you're djing you realize the connections between people and their similarities wherever you are in the world are much deeper really than their differences so i think that's that's quite an important thing that I've learned. But what I like most about, I think about being in Manchester has made me feel most comfortable really is by being part of the music scene. I think in 1980, obviously, Factory Records was up and running. And I remember when I arrived, I really glorified all the Manchester acts of that time. Obviously, Joy Division, The Fall, Magazine, etc., And I had in my head that I would arrive in Manchester and I would see these people who, to me, were absolute icons already. I'd see them being carried through the streets, you know, and and revered and worshipped. And it actually wasn't like that. It was a very small scene. So everything that we now celebrate about Manchester in the early 80s, I realised it was actually just a few people making it happen. You know, and I'd see Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks in the bookshop, you know, and Markie Smith having a drink in a bar. And they weren't being mobbed. And I couldn't kind of work out why they weren't, because to me they were godlike. But it was a very accessible scene because of that smallness. So when I started my fanzine in 1983, which was kind of my first step into that world, or my first cultural intervention, let's say, I remember knocking on the door of an office on Portland Street where Joe Moss, who ran a clothing company called Crazy Face, was based. He was the manager of the Smiths, and I wanted to interview the Smiths. And they'd only had one single out by this point. And Joe kind of buzzed me up to his office and sat me down and gave me a cup of tea. And he said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm starting a fanzine, and I'd like to interview... The smiths and he's like yeah okay uh what about 27th of december and i'm like oh okay yeah i'll send morrissey round to your flat uh <laughs> and i thought oh is that all it is <laughs> and it was all that it took you know and so that accessibility and friendliness and people opening doors and people recognizing that they wanted to support what you were doing as a young person all those things were really early experiences in the Manchester music scene. And that, and it's still like that, you know. It's still very collaborative and cooperative and supportive. And at whatever point you are, you know, whether you're just starting out or, you know, like me, you're kind of veteran.
1: And it's so true, isn't it? I mean, we we have clients, for example, who will want to start some business or an adventure in in Manchester and we say as long as you put the effort into the city you've got to be committed to it you know wholeheartedly but that door's always open isn't it And I think there's no different now than to when you're talking about even though that scene maybe is much bigger now.
0: Yeah you're right it is the same and also I've remembered that moment vividly because obviously subsequently I was that man who needed to open a door for somebody and I thought well you know and it wasn't just Joe I mean even even nationally people like John Peel for example was always very supportive of stuff that I did and and Tony Wilson of course and a lot of other people at the Hacienda and so they weren't keeping everything to themselves they realized I think that they were part of something much bigger obviously Tony was very key that Manchester as a city should benefit from everything that he did and his comrades did. Uh, So that sense that we're all on that journey together and that we're all here to make a contribution alongside other people and that the more people who do that and the more collaborative and supportive we are then everybody succeeds.
1: Yeah, that's so true. Did you think that when you came here in the eighties, did you find it easy to connect with people? Because obviously now with social media, you know, you can rock up in a new town, can't you? It's quite easy to make connections and friends and find mutual interests. How different was it then do you think than it would be today?
0: Well, music venues play such a part in that, don't they? And it's the glue that brings people together. You know, I would you'd see the same people, don't you, when you're, you know, you're younger and you see them out and about. And I was always fascinated by the weirdos, you know. I I was fascinated by the ones who were dressed a little bit or a lot unorthodox, you know. And the boys who look like girls and the girls who look like boys. And the ones with the little badges and, oh, I like that. Or the weird (laughs) T-shirt or odd trousers cut in a bit of a different way or mad haircuts. And I honestly, I remember I would follow those kind of people. Through the streets, it was the same in birmingham you 'd follow them to see where they were going because you just feel like wherever they are, something great is going to be happening, you know, and then they 'd go down like a little take a left down some dark because people like that tend to they know all the
1: good places they know
0: the good places, but those good places are off the beaten track, yeah, and I think that's that's something that I really love and I think we should celebrate in Manchester is you know, all those little places that aren't high street and they're not corporate and they're not mainstream and they're probably often not straight. And you take a left and you go down by the bus station or, you know, the railway arches or some part of town you've never been before. And you open the door and there, there's some completely other world. And those other worlds are things that I think attract you when you're a young person and you're, and you're quite, porous you know you're you're absorbing experience and you're looking for your place and you begin to feel more at home in those places than you might do at home and i think that's my that was really my experience and then i don't know if people listening to this podcast know how a fanzine kind of operates because it seems like i mean there are still zines around now but in the early 80s when i started my fanzine debris You'd put together this independent little magazine and I'd put all kinds of stuff in there. It wasn't just music, it was film and politics and all the things I was interested in and get it printed up. And then you'd take them in a carrier bag to gigs and you'd sell them to somebody face to face. And I love social networking, but also I did love walking round, you know, the Cypress Tavern or the Polly or the Hacienda or or Rafters or whatever the gig was. And I'd maybe take 40 or 50 with me in a plastic bag, 40p each. And I'd just try and sell them to people. And, uh, you know, not everybody was friendly and certainly not everyone bought one. But most nights I would empty my plastic bag and and I'd, I'd sell them all. And that was that was another way where I would just connect with people. And uh, the weird thing is that often uh, people will remember me from that era. Older people will say, you won't remember me, but I used to buy your fanzine off you, you know. And uh, there's a guy called Jean-Daniel Beauvalet, and he founded a, a brilliant music and culture magazine in Paris uh, called Les Un Rock and he talks about all the time like even in his autobiography the time he was at the hacienda he was like a young French guy and he came over to Manchester for a few months on a kind of pilgrimage in about 1985 and he remembers me selling the fanzine to him and us having a a brief conversation and you know and and for him you know a fanzine was a was a a kind of way of sharing ideas and passions and interests, but at the same time, those connections were fantastic to make.
1: Have you read uh, Mayflies? I have. Oh, I mean, that that weekend with all the lads from um, Glasgow come down to, um, to Manchester, that just typifies that kind of era t- for me.
0: It does. I mean, that, that, and incredibly, the DJ in that novel is me.
1: No, really, I didn't know that.
0: Uh, yeah, so in the novel, again, if you li- listeners don't know, in that novel, uh, which is kind of semi-autobiographical on Andrew O'Hagan's part, they come to Manchester for the weekend of uh, the Festival of the Tenth Summer uh, in 1986. and They have tickets for the concert at g And then, if you remember, they kind of worry about, will we get in the hacienda, you know? <laughs> yeah, And they do get in the hacienda, and that was one of my Saturday nights, because Andrew, the novelist, has talked to me about that, you know, in later years. And I didn't know he was going to fictionalise it and, and put it in that book. So at that point, one of their one of the protagonists comes up to the DJ box to request a record. And I am very moody and dismissive in that traditional Hacienda DJ style. I don't take requests, you <laughs> yeah. know. And uh, he goes, you know, he doesn't mind. The guy goes back to his mates on the Hacienda dance floor and, you know, they're they're having a good time. But then I play the record he requested and he's like, wow. (laughs) So uh, anyway, I've had a conversation subsequently with with the author about it and and he said, yeah, we we love that. We love the way that you were so aloof and yet also somehow friendly. (laughs)
1: Well, I didn't know that. That's amazing. I just thought it was a fantastic book. And just going back to saying that you followed people and found your tribe. When I came back from Birmingham, you know, I'd changed massively as a person through being there and, and being a student there. And I'd always been into my music massively. But when I came back to Manchester to work, I worked on Salford Crescent. I had a job at Centre 5 grand a year to get into PR. My tribe had changed completely because the people that had been in Manchester, a couple of them were still, you know, was friendly with. But I miss that whole, you know, that whole kind of student music going um, community that I had. And I got a job in Gander's Go South and met, the Inland Revenue used to come in there because I used to do happy hour a lot. I used to spin the wheel and I used to spin the wheel. And I met a load of the young people from the Inland Revenue who are all into music. And they went to, there's only like a couple of pubs in town then, but we used to go to Corbieres and that's where we just, you know, they had short working hours, I remember that, and they'd been on Friday afternoon, like at two o'clock in the afternoon, and then the Hacienda and Man Alive and all that. That's my whole new man to life, really, my tribe when I, when I came back here.
0: I love how we we all have a personal map of the city. And and although we have a tourist map now, you know, this is where you go to see, you know, this statue and the Peterloo and all that but at the same time we each have a private one don't we you know where we maybe got a job or somewhere we met somebody and I think Corbiers is one of those places (laughs) there's a basement bar in everyone's (laughs) life you know where where it was like oh that's where I used to love to go
1: so my friend Giovanna at university Giovanna Battiston sorry at sixth form when just before we're going off to university she said you're not going to believe this my dad's bought Corbier's and we couldn't believe it she had a I think it was her 18th in there and it was amazing so we used to have to even do the queue down the stairs we just got straight to the front every day And it was you know she everyone wanted to be her best friend I tell you and there was, I think it's 86 or something like that.
0: You know Happy Mondays played in there yeah in 1985 one of, yeah. Their, one of their first gigs.
1: You know I've not been in as well I need to go and I've not been in for years now but I kind of don't want to explode that how I remember Corby was being at the time that, like, before we all went out clubbing later on. But yeah, I love the fact that, like you say, that our music interest brought us all together. What
0: do people who don't like music do? <laughs> I, 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 I kind of, I find it kind of quite. Like, uh, I was around at somebody's house the other day, and I was there all day, and there was no music on, and it kind of felt weird. And I got home, and the first thing I did was play music loud, <laughs> and it just on. seems to make life three-dimensional you know it's like a constant soundtrack to me
1: when you talk about the map I love that I've not thought about that how we have our personal map and it's so true and I'm going to think about that because your own personal story is woven around the city isn't it from your touch points over your years I suppose you've been in the city but the same with music isn't it we've got a music map and those songs that suddenly that you just hear that takes you straight back like a sense almost to where you were and how you felt emotionally at that time
0: yeah but um, obviously the the thing for me is that I think for most people there's a certain time and place where they're adventurous in terms of where they go and what they listen to and I I, I kind of accept that for most people that is as you say the kind of teenage years student type age, early 20s and and then you know people kind of uh, drop out of that loop because real life maybe intervenes but the thing for me having carried on working in music is that I've carried on being able to do that and I still like doing that I still like if there's a new little venue that opens in town I like to go there you know and I accept I'll be the oldest person in the room but a couple of times I've gone to those kind of places and they're just full of first of all I don't know any of the music they're playing but it sounds great and it's full of young people, again dressed in a bit of an odd way that I've never seen anyone dressed like before. Just maybe, just a little bit different, but or a lot different. And I, I realise this is the next revolution. This is the next generation. And I don't feel, I never, I don't feel anything other than joy at that, because how unhealthy would it be if you went to those kind of places and it was the same kind of people listening to the same kind of music? Uh, as 20 30 40 years ago so that constant change is I think is fantastic and it's what gives energy to the city that each generation finds its own venues its own music its own look and dare I say it often its own drug or its own mode of intoxication and I think that's brilliant
1: Mm. because it's easy isn't it for Certainly, for Manchester to be pigeonholed in, into Manchester, I mean, it was a an incredible time, and it put Manchester on the map for sure. But like, my kids are twenty-one, nearly in twenty-three, and my son, who's twenty-three, just can't stand any of the Manchester stuff. He said, "You know, that's not what Manchester is, and it's like almost we're turning the city into a Disneyland. If it's a type of theme park, if that's all we can relate to." And I've heard you say on podcast before that It's not for you, you don't to play a whole night full of of those kind of <laughs> manchester bangers that's not what you
0: what you're about I don't begrudge any of my contemporaries who are still you know playing that music and in that world I think you know it, it's not for me to say how people should behave everyone needs to make a living and everyone needs to believe in what they do and a lot of people my age you know what they really believe in is that music from that era and that's all well and good but what I've enjoyed doing as I said is continuing to kind of adventure in music uh, and one of the reasons why I like doing gigs abroad is because often the audience is younger it's a it's an you know a, your average nightclub audience is not in their 40s and 50s mm-hmm. so you go somewhere and they don't have in their heads a playlist of what they expect you to play based on what they heard you play in 1989 so you have a lot more freedom often and that's what I like to do as a DJ I mean I, I play you know I'll play old music but I won't play a retro set one of the reasons why I don't really get involved with the Hacienda reunions Apart from a bit of internal hacienda politics, which we won't go into.
1: <laughs> right. If you so you're doing an international gig though, if you chuck a big Manchester song in there, is it always well received? Does it does it resonate, or is it not? Do, are we not actually exported as far as we think we have?
0: Well, I think we. I think it's lessened than it was. I mean, in the uh, in 1990, 1991, I, I had a monthly residency in a club in Paris. And that was more or less themed as a hacienda night it was an extension of what we were doing at the hacienda uh, and and the people who went wanted to hear what we were playing at the hacienda but I think as time has gone on I think people have been a bit confused about what we used to play at the hacienda because some people think it was kind of big acid house bangers and other people think it was wall-to-wall in spiral carpets mm-hmm. you know so so I don't really know what people expect my thing is, <laughs> I kind of look on it like, okay, so I played the Hacienda 480 times or whatever. I'm entitled to just play what I want, you know? And it's like, I try and play in the spirit of the Hacienda. You have a great time, but maybe you hear stuff you don't hear elsewhere. And that for me is the spirit of the Hacienda. It isn't. I don't want to be predictable and I don't want to be 100% retro you know, I want to be I want to imagine that the hacienda is open now and what would I play in order for the reputation of the club to be enhanced. And that's what I play. And uh, and I kind of have this thing. In fact the other day or the other month I was in Paris and I found myself for some reason playing the B fifty twos. And I thought, No one ever played the B fifty twos at the hacienda, but these twenty two year olds in Paris don't know that. And if I play it then why why can't i play it um i kind of thought they'd all go home going oh i wish i'd been at the hacienda they used to play the b-52s
1: (laughs) oh i love a bit of the b-52s that's always a crowd give me back
0: my man it was it sounded amazing
1: Obviously, an old friend of yours is Lem Cissé, and Lem's been on the the podcast. And one of the things that he said, which is just an amazing line, he said you could almost put your hand on the pavement and feel the bass lines from the night before, which is so poetic and so, so incredible, really. What was it like then to be in Manchester at that time, kind of playing, creating those bass lines, essentially?
0: I don't think I properly appreciated how... Great, it was. I'd started DJing in other clubs, uh, smaller clubs. The Hacienda wasn't really a renowned place for DJs when I started there in '86. I had quite kind of low expectations, and so did they, fortunately. (laughs) Uh, So then I, and it built and built from '86, and it kind of peaked, I think, in the middle of 1990. And in those four years, I'm not saying it was work, but I did have a certain work attitude to what I was doing. My focus was to make each Thursday and Saturday the two nights I was working, to make them as good as they could be and the following, and and as the nights were unfolding, I'd kind of make a mental note to myself of what worked and what didn't work, and then in the intervening few days, I'd go and buy more records and and my focus was really very much on that dance floor and that music and in a way I was so close to the action that I didn't really I wasn't mature enough maybe or I just didn't realize that if I stepped back I'd realize that it was something special that nobody else was doing and I mean Tony was the one I think who had that big perspective on things you know he'd kind of come in and you know he he would say this is a cultural revolution and i'd be like oh okay (laughs) Uh, and he uh thing with tony is uh, i don't i don't know if people kind of really get this but he wasn't like a, a music guy in the same way as a dj is like a dj will know every different mix every different b-side the new thing that's coming from detroit or belgium or sheffield and would be really immersed in it all tony wouldn't really be bothered with the niceties of all that he'd want to know what effect that music was having on the audience and how the audience were dressing and what attitude that music was giving off So he was aware of the kind of the aura and the potential of a piece of vinyl, whereas us DJs were all about the vinyl. And as I say, we're so close to it, it needed someone like him to come along and create the narrative and create the story. And that's what he did. And that's how the whole Manchester thing, in a way, communicated itself to a wider public was through the shaping of the story that he did Um, so I kind of look I look back and think yeah why did I why did I not keep all the flyers why did I not take a video camera and video what was going on and and why did I not appreciate just how incredible it was there was something about I kind of missed out but then on the other hand I do also think if you'd said to me you know, in the summer of 1988, play music that people will remember this club for in 34 years' time. I'd be like, I don't know what to play to fulfil <laughs> that criterion. I'll just play what I want to play. You can't operate like that, you know. You can't You can't predict it.
1: Hmm. But you were doing the same in a way, weren't you, by creating that story every night? And you've said about how much responsibility you felt with that audience to make sure that, you know, you were creating that that night of memories for them. So that comes with, that, you know, that comes with responsibility. So you never, you weren't part of the party in essence you were creating that party for them. That's the kind of very professional approach, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, in 86, when I started there, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Hacienda was a big, big club held at least a thousand people. And there were very few people going there but I was aware of all the clubs around town where everybody was in a different tribe. You know, there was the jazz funk and there was the kind of the post punk types and the hip hop crowd. And they were all in clubs holding 150 to 200 people. I had a very eclectic taste and I still do. And one of the things I knew I could do at the Hacienda was somehow unite all those people under the mirror ball by Understanding the key tunes that they were listening to and what drew them into the small clubs and to bring them into the big club and that 's what we we achieved if you look at the hacienda playlists in eighty seven eighty eight they were quite eclectic, and for me, it became a political thing for me it was about breaking down the barriers, getting people out of the out of their little mindset or the ghettos that they were put in or they were in and bringing people together Mm. and creating a big big community of people so in that way it was a very conscious effort on my part and then the other thing I remember is in the mid-90s that sense of responsibility by that time I'd moved on to the boardwalk I was doing the boardwalk two nights a week it was a great club very busy every week but at that time things had gone quite badly wrong in town and we were in the era that we now or were then, what was then called gunchester and you know you might remember that time there were, there were people taking guns into the club and there were fights and the police were involved and there was but also town itself was pretty lawless it wasn't the clubs were just a reflection of gang wars and violence all over town And I remember there was a a Friday night, a yellow night that I did. And uh, I I think on the Monday or the Tuesday following, I realized that two lads who'd been in the club the previous Friday had been killed on their way home that night from my club. And I just felt, I mean, obviously I was kind of devastated to find that i mean they were randomly they weren't troublemakers they were randomly killed you know one of them outside a, a chippy or something and i remember saying to the board or all right on friday i want to mark this so on the uh following friday i stopped the music and i got on the mic and i just i mentioned the two lads and i said this place has to be an oasis of positivity this place has to be where we celebrate our togetherness our sense of community and and dedicate you to tune to them because i did feel and i still feel that i think as a dj you're given that responsibility that by the people who come you know for them they might not have had a very good week lots of people don't have a great life and i you know and it's it's a very troubling and difficult world for a lot of people. And that Friday night out or Saturday night is so important for their sense of morale and Mm. bringing some joy into their lives. And, and, and I really feel that and people put their trust in you when you're a DJ and you have to really be, be aware of that and deal with that and live up to that trust. And I, I can just remember the, you know, the ap- atmosphere that Friday. It was, it was, you know, very, very emotional. Yeah. But it was also, you know, it's we don't escape to a club. If part escapism is part of it, but a club is always connected to what's happening outside in some way or another, because the attitudes that people pick up in that club they take with them for the rest of the week, you know, and if you have white kids black kids straight kids gay kids people from different parts of town north manchester south manchester students dolites. if you have all those people together and they're all enjoying that moment together then i do believe that when they wake up the next day their attitudes are changed and they are if you can dance together, you can live together. There's a tolerance that is somehow nurtured in those moments. So it's not a different world, it's it's a part of the wider world, a club.
1: You know, how do you approach your writing then? Is it is it a similar are there similar disciplines or
0: Yeah, the writing that I do I can't churn it out. I labour over it, but in a good way, you know. it. And I feel that that's just my philosophy, really. Do quality work. I mean, I recently wrote a small format book about Sylvia Plath in Paris. So I have this series of small format books that I'm working on. And it, honestly, it's the best thing I've ever written. And I just want people... I just... I re, you know, I really believe in it. Every word matters... The emotion in it is huge. The research in it is huge. It reads well. And I just want, I mean, I was thinking the other day, uh, I might just go to the publisher and get all the unsold copies and just take them out one day and give them to people. Because that's all I want to do is kind of share my enthusiasm for that project and that book with everyone. And kind of the fact that you have to sell them is a kind of, you know <laughs> upsets me in some way I'd like to just kind of give it away, uh but you know could we live it in it we live in a capitalist society, sure. Lisa
1: but you could take them around in plastic bags and sell them for forty p Well, <laughs> and exactly. they give them for charity
0: <laughs> exactly i mean i do you know I, I I try and they are in some ways a throwback to the fanzines you know the these small format books I've done five now I'm working on a sixth, and that they are things I I want to share with people and maybe yeah in 1985 I'd have you know written a couple of pages about it in the fanzine uh and 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 now I spend six months writing something a little bit more a little bit bigger but it's still that I think curiosity is something really deep inside me and when I was young really young I was so curious about then, the Vietnam War, for example, you know. And I would, I'd watch Top of the Pops, I'd be curious about Slade, you know. <laughs> uh, <We'll> and <laughs> I, I can remember going to see Blondie in 1978 uh, in a little club, and it was amazing. But as well as the kind of visceral excitement of seeing Debbie Harry and Blondie, uh, there was also a part of me that was somehow analysing you know, who are the people in the audience? Where where have they come from? Who you know? Where have they? Where's Blondie come from? And and through that, learning about Blondie in New York and CBGBs and Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol, and just following that curiosity. And uh, then I think when I discover stuff, my urge is then to share it with people. You know, and just like you'll never guess what I discovered. You know. So I discovered Courtney Love lived in Liverpool for six months in 1982 and hung out with a lot of Liverpool musicians and, uh, and I, d- I just decided I wanted to write a little book about it. So one of my small format books is about Courtney Love in Liverpool in 1982 because it's such a, it's a story that hadn't been told before and it was just so intriguing to me. And like I say, it kind of, it really triggered my curiosity and then when I'd done all the research I wanted just to say to people you'll never guess what Uh, and and that is kind of my abiding I think my abiding value in the same way as you know when I hear a record my first thought is often I can't wait to play that I can't wait to play that loud in a club inflict it on 200 (laughs) dancing people
1: I think I only know that Courtney love story because of you. I think I remember thinking that I, that's nobody knows that, and it's interesting. Have you um seen the Mill? The Mill newsletter that's Yoshi Herman's set up. Yes, I have seen it. Yeah, and that's super. The same way, you know, he's come to the city because he loves the city. He's not a Mancunian. Because I was a bit offended when he when I first met him. He does know this, and I said I was like, he's calling at the Mill, and he's coming to Manchester. And he's from down south. But he's taking time, he's curious, and he's telling the stories that, you know, the current media that we have here just don't have the time or the resources to tell. He told a story um, about Ginny Greenteeth, which I grew up being terrified of Ginny Greenteeth. My grandma said you know, she lived in the in the sewers and she'd get you if you're naughty. And like, people don't talk about those things. So I think to uncover and, and have the love and the interest to bring those stories to life and share them, I don't know if that's a Mancunian thing. I think, you know, you talk about DIY culture and Manchester having that platform to enable us to share that and have a willing audience as well. I mean, so maybe that's just something that we're really good at doing here.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing that I like about um, the bill and that kind of DIY activity is uh, I think sometimes in modern Manchester, modern, regenerated, sparkly Manchester, we forget... The radical edge of the city and we'll celebrate peterloo and the chartists and the suffragettes and even factory records and kind of forget that they were oppositional you know they were radical yeah. they were activists and in some ways it's a kind of little bit of a sad irony i think that the history of those radicals and activists are somehow kind of used in order to create a feel-good story about Manchester but actually that should be about other voices it should be about creating opportunities and listening out for marginalized voices and marginalized people mm-hmm. and i think that manchester sometimes needs to remind itself that people you know like myself who put my head above the parapet occasionally and will criticize something that's happening in the city it doesn't come out of not loving the city it comes out of wanting the city to be perfect and to adapt and to change. And I think sometimes we could be a bit defensive and we have all this, you know, Manchester is a world city, Manchester's an amazing city. But that doesn't mean that it can't be more amazing and it can't be more perfect. And there are people who are not feeling the benefits of the transformations over the last thirty years. And I think um I think that's something that, you know, I think we, we, we need to find time and platforms Mm -hmm. for those radical ideas you know, to come through. And I mean, my analogy, I guess is if, as people, we like to have self-esteem, okay? And if you've got great self-esteem, that's good. But you don't stop at that. Mm. If you're self-critical, then that's an even bigger virtue. So you need to try and, I think, as a city, try and balance that as you do a human being. Try and feel self-esteem, but at the same time, not be complacent about who you are. I've got
1: some random facts about you, and I'm going to let you pick a couple of these that you want to talk about, so I'll we'll just <laughs> tell you what I've got. So we've got Sonic Youth of slats on your floor... Neil Tennant introduced you to Tracy Emin. Tony Wilson threatened to shoot you. Uh, you took John Peel to see Public Enemy. You've cooked cauliflower cheese for Morrissey, which is a guest when he, he came round to interview <laughs> interview him. And you've lectured on Joy Division at the Middle Tennessee State University. So they are the most random facts I think I've had of anybody. So
0: <laughs> well, why, why don't you? I don't know. I'll pick I mean, two. I'll you pick kill. two.
1: Tony Wilson threatened to shoot you.
0: Yeah I mean I think I think a lot of people who worked for a long while with Tony found him incredibly inspiring but also sometimes infuriating because he had a very strong vision for what he wanted and he would get very frustrated if you didn't follow that vision to the letter and I mean if you look at All the things he achieved uh, were magnificent. And he did inspire me, he did open doors. But at the same time, you know, he fell out with, you know, Martin Hannett, the Joy Division uh, producer who, in fact, threatened to shoot Tony to the point of taking a gun to a meeting. You know, he fell out with bands. He fell out with Peter Savile for a while. He fell out with the journalist Paul Morley, who ended up writing his biography. So he fell out with lots of different people. And, you know, he fell out with me probably two or three times, over the period of 14, 15 years, over stuff, sometimes I don't even remember what, but on that occasion, he'd fallen out with me over the film 24-hour party people, and uh, I'd had more input in the film than he wanted me to have, and he just didn't like that, I think he wanted to have more, he wanted control over things, Uh, and I became a bit of an irritant to him, and I think he must have gone to a few meetings where he'd gone along with an idea, and they're like, oh no, we we're already doing that because Dave Haslam's organizing it. <laughs> and, uh, and then when the film came out, I organized a meeting celebrating, I think it was called something like The Women of Factory, who I felt like the story that had been told in 24-hour party people had excluded a lot of female voices, so I, I think Gillian from New Order and uh and a few other people who'd been around. We did a we did a big thing at the corner house and he felt he took that personally. So anyway, he um he did a radio interview and unbeknownst to me, uh somebody said I think quoted to him something I'd written. Something nice about Tony. But it just triggered that triggers Tony's ire <laughs> and he said don't talk to me about dave haslam uh i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot him i'm gonna oh. get someone to kill him and somebody played back to me the interview yeah, it was a bit extreme, wasn't it but um he, d- he obviously didn't did you
1: make up about it or was it just always left hanging that
0: we di- well on that occasion we didn't because it was quite near the end of his life. Right. we didn't have time unfortunately oh. well we did we i i remember i was somewhere near the Midland Bank at the top of King Street, the bank that became Jamie's kitchen. Yeah. And then I turned the corner and kind of bumped into him and we were both like, Hi. <laughs> and then we both remembered that we were feuding. Yes. So we were like, we kind of had to swallow our hi and give each other a dirty look and walk on. And I think it was probably the last time I saw Tony, but, you know, I at the same time I'd fallen out with him I fell out with him quite majorly in 1990 but then I saw him a lot in the later in the decade so
1: probably all for the cameras though it's probably just do you think that was Tony's demeanor
0: first of all the whole factory hacienda thing it's you're thrown together in very intense conditions you know the context of me and him working was the club was losing money there's people bringing in guns all those problems, the record label going bankrupt. So of course, there's going to be. It's not like you're running a kind of yeah, you're not running a call center, you're not running a travel agency, you're not you know, you're running something where every week everyone's livelihoods and and even people's lives are on the line. Yeah. So in that intense situation, then things are going to be said people are going to do things that other people don't approve of so it's a kind of extreme form of office politics and uh, and that's how that's how it was you know and you don't go through all those experiences especially when there's drink and drugs around and come out and, and not have issues with each other you know and uh yeah, the number of people from that era of my life that I've had times when I've not spoken to them and now we're kind of best buddies. Numerous people. That's just what life's like, you know. But and sometimes maybe you don't make up, but you know, that's move on.
1: Mm. Everyone's chilled out a bit since those days, haven't they? To some degree Well, Well, You hope that and, when you
0: get yeah. yeah, when you get to <laughs> my age or kind of yeah I do think that In also Tony was like a good few years older than me and I think that uh, there's always an element of the young kids coming in and you know yeah sort of challenging that's part of what should happen Mm -hmm. the challenge to the older people you know but that's how things keep moving on so Mm -hmm. I don't think he always dealt with that particularly well but you know it was as I say incredible person to be around
1: mm. and tell me about the cauliflower then
0: Morrissey famously is uh, well famously is a vegetarian but he was also celibate so he was a kind of celibate vegetarian non-drinker or he was a bit of a drinker but anyway <laughs> he came around to the my flat and I, I didn't there wasn't you know corn sausages or vegetarian ready meals at that point uh, so I didn't have a major repertoire of things I could feed him and he was coming around at tea time I wanted to be hospitable so I decided I would cook him some food and uh, in fact his manager told me that he likes eggs but I, I don't think eggs is an evening meal eggs is a breakfast meal <laughs> so I uh, the only thing I had in my uh, repertoire was cauliflower cheese so I cooked cauliflower cheese for him when he came round. And sadly, his mum had already fed him. <laughs> so I, the beginning of the interview is me eating cauliflower cheese, him watching me eat cauliflower cheese. And then I had the remainder for the following day.
1: I'm impressed that you actually had a cauliflower in your house like a full cauliflower A cauliflower
0: in Hume I was in Hume <laughs> in 1983 fresh cauliflower
1: and that was just in your house you didn't have to nip out and get one <laughs> very impressed we have to talk about you deciding to sell all your vinyl because obviously that's such a an existential kind of moment my mum threw all mine out that was a good idea she had to clear out and I I cried for days i still I've not quite got over that grudge yet but what was the emotional driver behind that? Was it was it an existential or was it just a, you know, a clear out and you were going to have everything online?
0: Uh, I still haven't kind of completely worked out why. I do think that in life you make decisions, even major ones, that are somehow instinctive or spontaneous. And if you were to be asked for a bullet point, a few bullet point reasons why you did something. You know, even leave a job, you know, or or leave a lover. Sometimes you don't do that with a bullet point reasons. You do it because it just, at that moment, it seems like the only thing you can do. And it was a bit like that. I, uh, I wasn't playing the vinyl because it was at a point where most clubs didn't have turntables in anymore and if I wanted to play vinyl I had a couple of bad experiences where they tried to put in turntables and they weren't fitted properly and the vinyl was jumping and it just felt so they were all this four and a half thousand pieces of vinyl were sat in my basement and uh I yeah woke up one day uh, and posted a photograph of them all there and said I'm selling all my records And some of my friends got in touch with me, kind of, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Um, But it felt right at the moment. And I subsequently have kind of tried to work out, well, why did I come to that sudden decision? And I think it was not just to do with the fact that I wasn't using them, but... I'd also lost my emotional connection to them. I don't know why. I think I just got to maybe a point in my life where I making emotional connections to inanimate objects was not at the top of my list of things that were happening in my life. I had enough issues with emotional connections to human beings. Uh, so I think I wanted to concentrate more on that. Uh, I thought I would never lose my emotional connection to the bits of vinyl because I they I'd lived with them and I knew where I'd bought them and I knew them inside out and I knew where I'd played them when I was DJing but that's what had happened so uh but subsequently I've realized that I think it was a little bit symbolic of me uh wanting to lighten my load going forward that I was at a point in my life where I could keep going back to that vinyl, uh, either as a person or a DJ, uh, which was really my past, or I could make sure that however many years I've got left on this planet, I would be looking forwards into the future. And so selling the records, I think, were became symbolic of that desire to look forward lighten my load get rid of my get rid of the records to to help create a future for myself uh and i sold the complete collection to another dj a, a young guy uh called seth troxler uh and he said he'd keep the collection together, which is kind of what you want. Like you say, if it all gets thrown out by your mum or put into a skip or whatever, that you've kind of lost, that like you've properly lost them. Uh, and he, he and he plays them around the world. So the records had a new lease of life, uh, which is kind of what ought to have happened, you know, which is definitely a good thing. And Seth Troxler and I have obviously become good friends we did a gig that raised four grand for mental health charities he occasionally sends me photographs of him in Argentina and Mexico and exotic places with holding up my my record (laughs) (laughs) so for me it's all happy endings really so I'm kind of glad that I I trusted that weird unexpected instinctive decision of the moment and I still have all my magazines so I'm not parted completely (laughs) I've not gone minimalist you know absolutely uh so my house is still full of stuff but no vinyl
1: it's interesting isn't it like we have an expression in our family most from my grandma which is about your kids it's roots and wings it's allowing things to go at the right time and they don't really go but not that pressure to have to hold on to stuff and I think it's lovely that your vinyl is actually you know it's giving so much joy to so many people around the world and to a young person as well who you know that's been a, a gift for him hasn't it as well so I think that's the circle of life type of thing isn't it really
0: yeah it is like passing on the baton to somebody else and I think ultimately that's what you do I can't speak for people generally but I think probably people in what we call the creative industries or some kind of creative endeavor i think that that's ultimately what we're doing we're 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 part of a continuum Mm. and so much work whether you're a dj or writer or an artist or a poet whatever you are you're drawing from what people have done in generations before even subconsciously but what you're also doing is you're providing maybe ammunition for people in the future and you're you're part of that long story and that is that that's the big story of creative endeavor through the ages to make the world a better place we hope
1: right well that leads into our quick fire i've got to ask you this one the song to you which most sums up
0: manchester true faith new order Mm
1: best venues back in the day and now
0: i loved the boardwalk because i moved there from the hacienda and it was a clean slate and i managed to make it work uh now albert hall i think is one of the best live venues anywhere i mean we can look back at the 80s and and mythologize it but we didn't have a venue as great as that in the middle of town
1: it's unbelievable, that place. And from the second it opened, it was like, where the hell? What has this been before? It was just like this whole new gift to the city that nobody even knew about. And just incredible to go in there and go to gigs. And I'll go to, I mean, the gospel, they do the gospel Christmas stuff there. I just think it's wonderful. What do you order at the Chippy?
0: Cod. Full chips, never half chips. Uh,
1: What's half chips?
0: Well, you know, sometimes half portion. Oh, God, no. no, We'd like a half portion. No, no, no. No. No No way. And, yeah, and mushy peas and curry sauce. I mean, the works.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Best gig you've ever done and
0: why? Well, luckily, I've just done a gig in Preston in a club called the New Continental. And I say luckily because... I would always say, you know, that you, you should be judged on the last gig you did or the next gig, and uh, um, that was the last gig I did, and it was fantastic. I mean, it's small venue, a pub in the middle, and kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I mean, I don't mean Preston's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, kind of like on <laughs> the edge of Preston. Uh, it just worked, and the audience just went with it. What tends to happen is that. I might have two gigs where I give it give myself kind of 7 out of 10 and I begin to worry will I ever get another great night and then the third or fourth one of the series is that 10 out of 10 and I think that is why I'm a DJ and that is why there's no way I'm going to retire until you know nobody turns up at a gig you know <laughs> because there's always that gig down the line uh and Preston was a ten out of ten. And you never know, you know could I can go yeah. to Pari- I could go to Paris and have a three out of ten. I can go to Italy and have a nine. You never know. Uh but when you do get a ten out of ten you, you just think this is why I was put on God's earth and the joy lasts for days, you know? You I walk to the supermarket on Burton Road, with a little extra s- spring in my step after a good gig.
1: <laughs> it's by cauliflower. <laughs> <laughs> and um, best Manchester floor filler for you over the years.
0: I would say Voodoo Ray, guy called Gerald, or Ain't Nobody by Rufus and Chaka Khan, which is for me that's my all, probably all-time favourite yeah. dance record. Yeah,
1: I've heard you say that both of those and they're still absolutely relevant today aren't they no one's got tired of those tracks at all just lastly legacy so obviously you know no doubt you you are creating legacy in spades with all the you know the writing you're doing the documenting of some incredible people and your in your live conversations um, and obviously you created countless nights which people will never forget on some of those dance floors but for you what would you most want your legacy to be seen as
0: wow that's quite a deep question uh, I don't know if I'm quite ready <laughs> ready for that. <laughs>
1: I'm not seeing you off. I just mean, you know, what's your purpose in a way?
0: Well, I just think being authentic mm-hmm. to myself and authentic and you know, real and all that is important to me as a as a role model, as a a parent, and as a veteran of the music scene. I think those those are the things that. you you want to be remembered for
1: Mm. Yeah, the simple stuff I love it.
0: Yeah, the simple stuff
1: So thank you so much for joining me and helping us to build the city Dave, it's been amazing and we're looking forward to you um, not retiring anytime soon I can't imagine any of those dance floors are going to be empty when you walk in one day
0: (laughs) Thank you so much Thank
1: you, I've really enjoyed it Dave Haslam has built the city by cooking cauliflower for Morrissey by uniting people under a mirror ball and by being dave haslam and playing what he wants on the next episode of we built this city i'll be joined by the multi-award winning social entrepreneur and green tech innovator dr marilyn Comrie obe that episode will be out on the 3rd of march If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at rdprtweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161. 236 1122 and in the meantime don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.